Do you have any uh, weirdos or any uh, strange stories? Oh, man. Um, yeah, there were definitely some weirdos, but this really gross dude from the UK that was really hairy. I, that's, <laughs> I just remember this really hairy dude. We had to, like, rinse the bathtub every time, so... Welcome to the Highly Leveraged Podcast, interviewing landlords and industry professionals to help you start and continue to scale your rental income portfolio. Here's your host, Dave Rosa. What's up? Thanks for joining me today. I got Alan Smith out of Nashville, Tennessee. His first venture was actually renting out rooms inside a single family house. Which, I, actually, that's how Airbnb started. Uh, that's why it's called Airbnb. Three guys started renting out some air mattresses inside their house. Air for the air mattress, B&B, you should know, means bed and breakfast at this point. All right, anyway, Alan also has done a lot of burst strategy, which is buy, rehab the property, rent it out, refinance it to pull your money back out, and then go repeat it on your next deal. He's also done a lot of wholesaling, and he's also done a build-to-rent model on a 1,000-square-foot home. So here he is. Alan Smith. All right, yeah, so why don't you just tell me about how you started, uh, how you got your first property, and what got you into all of this? Sure. So when I first started, I had just gotten a job out of college, and I was meeting with a mentor, and he said, you know, you should buy a house. And I remember thinking that that was a crazy idea. Why would I buy a house? I just got a job. But I eventually did take his advice a few months later, and then I house hacked that. So I rented out the rooms, and I thought that you know, it's kind of a magical thing. You have tenants paying your mortgage and you're making money while eliminating your number one expense. So it was just kind of like I was hooked from that point forward. And a couple of years later, I quit my day job and went full time into real estate from that point forward. So that was kind of the springboard. So that, that was just a single family house that you were just renting out a few of the rooms? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I ended up Airbnb being one of the rooms that was like 2013. Um, so that you know, made extra two. That was a good learning experience. No kidding. So how long did you do that for? Um, that was probably, I mean, I lived there four or five years and, uh, we, I think I was running out, I rented out the rooms the whole time. I did the Airbnb thing, probably the last half of that. All right. So how did you move on from that to, uh, your next property? Um, well, I think around that point I started getting into the whole bigger pocket scene, reading more books, listening to podcasts and, got kind of tipped off on the whole marketing thing. So I would say, you know, I think it's important for anybody who's going to start in real estate or learn, you know, what their niche is. They kind of have to leverage their resources and see what you're good at and, and work with that. So what seemed to work for me at the beginning was marketing. And I would just go ahead and scrape lists and send out letters. I was handwriting yellow letters in the early, early days, uh, like when I was working from home <laughs> at my day job. And eventually I did quit that. So I was doing it on my own time. But I would just send out letters mostly. I mean, for like years, I just did direct mail and I'd find deals. And some of them I'd wholesale. I started finding um, partners to take down rentals with. And that was kind of like, you know, secret weapon number two that worked well for me to kind of leverage me into more scale was finding money folks. So they would do the down payment and sign the loan, uh, that kind of thing. They, and we would work together and I would do all the grunt work. So, you know, getting to 47 units or however many it is now, uh, has mostly been due to that springboard at the beginning of being able to work with folks who are looking for a passive return and I'll do all the hustle and they get, 
you know, appreciation, uh, loan pay down, cash flow, all that stuff. Now, when you were sending out those yellow letters back in the day, were you sending that strictly to single family houses or were you sending that to two family, three families as well? It was mostly single families. I, I think I started on the probate thing pretty early. Yeah, my first couple deals I wholesaled and that was probate. It took six months to get my first deal. Um, I know for some people it's longer, but it seems like for most people it's a lot shorter, but I just kind of kept going on it for six months and I was thinking about, well, I'll go to 12 months and if still no deals, I'll give up at that point. But I was scraping the, I think I had a virtual assistant scraping the data um, from the county records and then I would make the list and then I think I was probably handwriting the envelopes and that kind of thing and mailing out those letters. Eventually I started going towards more of a professional letter and of course anybody who do, does direct mail knows that eventually you got to mix it up between all kinds of different types of direct mail and see what sticks the best. Because um, you never know, some people may just like a postcard, some people like the professional white letter with a logo kind of thing. And now uh, what city was this and how close to where you were living are you sending out all of these letters? Ah, yeah. So I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. And in those days, I was just targeting the county I live in. I would say around 2016. No, no, no. It was probably 2017, 2018. I started running into a lot more uh, challenges on ROI on marketing. It was harder and harder to get deals where the numbers make sense. And so one day I just sat down and I just remember kind of randomly picking a few cities around me, like 30, 45 minutes away and sending out some direct mail to them. And uh, it's single families. Most of the time, most of all this stuff has been single families. Uh, it just kind of, man, my callback response rate on that first letter campaign to is Springfield, Tennessee, I think was like 10, 12%, which was great for me. And, you know, I got one or two deals out of a list of 300 people. And to this day, I just, I miss those days. I mean, now it's like, you got to send thousands. Now, was that before Nashville exploded? I know it's, they had a big real estate boom there. Was that still, was that in the middle of it or was that before it started? Man, it, it's hard to say when Nashville really took off. I think it was kind of, there's probably a boom somewhere around 2018, I feel like. It just kind of, ever since 2008, it just has kept going up. And I know a lot of metro areas have grown pretty explosively and stuff, but Natura, Nashville is no exception. It, it's been pretty aggressive. You know, there's like uh, news articles that'll keep track of the crane watch, you know, how many giant construction projects are going on. And it's over a hundred, you know, of these apartment complex and just big projects going up. All right, so you're going around, you're sending out a bunch of letters, you're wholesaling, and then eventually you started buying some of those with your own money, or did you start um, partnering with others? Yeah, so I I kept partnering with people on different deals here and there, but pretty soon I realized that there's a lot more bang for the buck if you can take it down yourself. Because anytime you buy a deal, and this is something I've been learning here lately, is just kind of the overhead costs of if you try to scale or, or do more deals, like maybe you do 10 deals with partners or five deals yourself. Well, 10 deals requires you know the overhead and transaction coordination and admin and all that stuff of 10 deals instead of five. So you, you can really make more bang for your buck if you can just buy things yourself and it just simplifies everything. So I started doing, of course, the Burr method, the now very popular strategy. And um, it's kind of it's kind of magical, man. You you buy a house with the hard money and then you fix it up and then refinance out. And I remember getting like on the first one that I did 100% by myself, it was a duplex and two single families in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I'd kind of expanded over there by that point. 
I, I just remember like, man, this is crazy. So the bank just paid me to keep all these and I want to go do that again. So I'll just keep buying rundown houses that need renovation and then get somebody on the, in Chattanooga, it's about the only place I can find rentals these days. So I'll have my contractors and team out there, fix it up, and then I'll go to the bank and refinance. And I usually have to leave something in them like 5,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks a unit kind of thing. But I did have one duplex where the appraisal comes back and just totally works you and you have to leave all this cash in it. So I thought about selling it, but I think it's on the edge of a town, edge of town where it's really going to go up in value kind of by missionary Ridge. So that's an area out there that I think will, will keep going. Now, when you said uh, you're doing it by yourself, did you mean financially or were you over there swinging the hammer and everything yourself as well? Uh, that I meant financially. Yeah. A hundred percent ownership is what I meant there. So I've, I remember my first duplex I bought in 2016. I, the, the tenant moved out and I'm in there with the paint brush and the roller and I remember, you know, paying my girlfriend at the time to come help. And it was just like, this is for the birds. What are we doing? You know, we're so slow at this. And I could have paid somebody to paint it like maybe 500 bucks. And it would have saved me two weeks of time, which was about two weeks of rent. So it's, I, I didn't save any money. This is silly. So ever since that rental, I, I gave up trying to like get in there and swing the hammer and stuff. There's some jobs that are just a real pain to hire somebody for, like getting somebody to do one thing can be kind of kind of difficult so sometimes i'll just hop in there and do that 30 minute task or whatever but for the most part you know you, to scale you really gotta rely on, on other folks and their skills so you must have found a really good construction crew at this point uh was that hard at first finding somebody that was trustworthy especially with all the construction that's going on in nashville i'm sure there's not a whole hell of a lot of them around there well it keeps getting harder as you know contractor labor gets more and more spread out and thin I would say um, now around Nashville these days, I'm pretty much the project manager on everything. I've been dabbling more in development and I'm working on getting my general contractor's license. So I plan on being the contractor, but I'll, I'll probably scale a little higher project manager if I can get a few more projects going at once. Um, in Chattanooga, it's very virtual, hands-off. I have a um, contractor out there who's pretty good and I give him uh, pretty much every job that comes through and he's able to do things at a reasonable price and he's he's trying to scale too so he's trying to be the go-to person for investors who need a reasonably priced contractor at scale and um i mean contractors when i think of probably the biggest mistakes i've made in real estate are around contractors i mean just this year i paid somebody for cabinets on venmo through a referral and then they kind of disappeared into the night after a couple months of saying they would show up and do it. Here I am like supposed to know what I'm doing and I'm still paying people without fully underwriting them, you know? So I went ahead and sent money over and, and I think it's okay to pay contractors up front. You know, it's a, it's a common dilemma in the real estate investing world. You know, do you pay the guy up front or do you not? I think now my policy on that is that we'll pay people up front, but I have like a list of due diligence that I'll do now. So I'm going to go look up there you know, their license number. I'm going to get that on file. I want to see a copy of their insurance. I want to talk to people they've worked with. You know, there's a whole list of that now. And I think that that'll drastically reduce episodes like this. Of course, it's always easier if the guy can just float material money for a few days, do the job, and then I pay him as fast as possible. That's always the better model. But some of these guys um, are usually trying to ask for money up front. And I think a lot of the times, if you're 
you know, for future reference, anybody listening, if you're working with a contractor who's asking for money, that right there is is a bit of a small red flag. It's generally not necessary to take money up front, but I have had success with it. I have had some people I pay up front and it's a good price and it goes great and I use them again and again, but it's kind of a dance that you have to, to do. So what, when did your business come into all of this? When did you start that up? Yeah, I would say I went full-time in 2016 and that's when I started doing the marketing and things grew from there. So my overarching goal is to own rentals and build a rental portfolio and just keep going. I think my next checkpoint on that, I want to hit 5 million in gross revenue in the rental business. And that's probably going to take several years, you know, three to five years. But uh, it all started out with just sending those letters. I would just get one deal, recycle it back into marketing money or whatever, keep meeting people, keep scaling. I've got like a 60 page Google doc that I've written processes and procedures into. And I use Uh, Probably my most developed aspect of my business is property management because I've just gotten so annoyed with doing things wrong that I write down a better way to do it. And now I have an admin assistant that helps me pretty much run the property management. So it's just kind of, I guess over the course of the, what is it, 2016 is, is almost exactly five years ago this month that I started off on my own. I would say, yeah, the marketing really helped me get started, but I've always kind of been a bit of a shiny object syndrome situation. It's like, I'll just kind of go where opportunity presents itself. But what you lose when you go for that is synergies and and, uh, efficiencies of scale, you know? So if you're always doing wholesales, well, it's not long before you can hire an acquisitions guy or an admin person to scrape lists or whatever. But I was doing like three to five wholesales a year and then a couple flips and then let's try a build, let's buy some land, let's and it's just hard to scale when you're spread out like that. So I'm, I'm trying to get myself to focus down more, but it, it just, it, if you're going to build a business in real estate, it, if you can kind of find a niche to stick with that until you can scale it up and then hire some help to at least lift the, the task saturation burden a little, then you can focus on other things and grow from there. But it's hard to train somebody. This is what I've run into. It's hard to train somebody to help with something when it's, it's only 20% of your, you know, full-time role as an entrepreneur. So how do you, you either have to hire somebody who can work two hours a day and is actually skilled, or you have to find a Swiss army knife who can work full-time for you, but they can do pretty much everything you can do. And you got to pay that person a ton. So it's kind of, it's tricky. So are you still doing wholesaling now? Or was that only for the first few years? I have, uh, the last deal I wholesaled was about a year ago and I have been, I mean, full transparency, phasing out my marketing. I, the ROI on it is just kind of fading out for me. And I've, I know other people out there are doing it in able. I know everybody's having trouble finding deals, but some people are still able to get good deals with their own marketing. It seems like a lot of cold calling SMS is going on out there. Uh, what I have found for deal flow is just talking to the the folks in the industry. So I just try to know as many wholesalers and realtors as I can. And I'm going to them for just kind of checking in on deal flow. And um, that that has been good for me. So for anyone out there looking to get into wholesaling, how does that process work out? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's pretty simple. It's not easy. <laughs> so you just have to find a deal somehow. And, and people are doing that a number of different ways. I think... Um, you know, SMS is great. It's like two cents per text that you send out. You got to be careful on the regulations there, but you can do SMS, direct mail, uh, pay-per-click, Facebook ads. 
leverage the algorithms in those platforms like Facebook and let them find leads and bring them to you based on behavior patterns and profiles of people. Um, cold calling seems to be the heavy hitter right now. I, for at least a year, I've heard most people getting pretty solid deal flow from cold calls. So anyway, you get the, you get the lead to come in and you move it down the sales pipeline. Um, there's, there's a number of ways that people do that. Use your scripts, use your, your, um, your tonality on the phone when you answer all those things that come down the sales pipeline, but then just get a contract on the property at a price that makes sense. Seems like the uh, the two main numbers that wholesalers, new wholesalers have problems with is nailing the ARV, the after repaired value of the house. So once you fix it up, what's this thing going to be worth? Um, that can be a little bit tricky if you haven't done it before. Pretty intimidating. Um, I, I still use redfin.com to run comps. I mean, it's very unfancy, but it works for me. And once you nail that ARV, you're going to need your repair costs for the house if you're just flipping like a house or a rental kind of thing. Um, and those numbers can be kind of hard to nail. I bought a house, I think, well, that's off topic, but um, it it's, can be tricky for wholesalers to nail that cost because they just don't know what the numbers is. They're, they're just salespeople mostly, not just salespeople. That's a very high value skill. And actually, I don't really have it. So good for them. But uh, once you get that contract, then you go looking for your buyer. And I think in a market like this, um, it's really hard to find that good deal. So if you can beef up your buyer's list and talk to some hedge funds or just hungry buyers. I know there's some wholesalers around here that have full-time people finding buyers who are, are kind of in a season of needing a deal. Like they just sold a deal or they got a 1031 exchange. So then they're what you might call a motivated buyer. So you got to find your motivated seller, your motivated buyer, and that margin in between is what you get to make as the wholesaler. What, what, what helped you scale up the most? Because you're at almost 50 units now. And you started off pretty slow. So what was it that they bumped you up and got you really, really scaling up? Well, I am highly leveraged <laughs> to uh, quote the podcast. Yeah, I, I have brought in partners pretty early on. They'll bring the cash that allows me to do pretty much as many as my operations can allow me to handle. I, I really think that's that's the main thing. Uh, brought, brought in partners, cash, equity partners. Uh, I borrow from hard money lenders a lot. I've um, built a relationship with a doctor in Indiana. So when he's got extra cash, he'll wire it in for closing. So that kind of helps me keep hustling. I, I think that's the main thing, really. I've got some admin assistants. Uh, I'm, I've got one that's going to be going full-time later this year, which is pretty exciting because I'm just drowning in the task saturation and operations. Um, that's that's kind of the bottleneck right now, really. I'm almost caught up on deal flow, but it's, it's just keeping up with everything that's getting a little bit crazy. Uh, so, so what do you got in the near future planned right now? Are you working on anything at the moment or anything before the end of the year? Well, I'm working on getting that general contractor's license. So I've got um, one project under contract that's going to be a pretty unique, yeah, a unique deal. It's a kind of a historic home in East Nashville, which is, uh, you know, becoming a very cool area of Nashville. And We'll, we'll fix up the house and then in the back, we can build a house on the same property. So right now it's just a single family property with a house, but it's zoned that allows an HPR. Uh, so it's the deal where you, you pop up two houses and they kind of share the yard kind of thing. So we'll build a house in the back and keep the existing house. Um, it's also a high end deal where the house will probably sell for 675, something like that. So 
it's it's going to stretch me in a number of ways, but that's sort of the direction I want to go. Um, I need to start moving more into bigger multifamily deals besides these triplexes and quadplexes. Um, so I need to go more that direction. Probably not going to put a lot of in, uh, invest a lot of time in that this year, but just hustle that that scene of getting some land deals going and bringing in partners probably to fund it. Just just scale it that direction. You started and owned Skyline Home Solutions. What what exactly do you do with that business? Is that just as far as you building your own portfolio or are you helping others as well? Skyline Home Solutions is kind of the catch-all brand for Alan Smith. You know, that's just me uh, sort of doing business as Skyline Home Solutions. I do have an LLC that holds rental properties under that name. And uh, it's just sort of a shell company. When I bring in partners, we'll usually start an LLC or something different and kind of use that as a shell company and give them their liability protection. So right now, I mostly break my my uh, business down into two kind of lanes, two verticals. And that's, of course, the rental stuff that I just keep. I'll just buy rentals, fix them up and rent them out and then refinance. And Or I might bring in partners, but you got the rentals there. And then on the other side is just the, the construction, the project management, the things that bring in cash to power the rental machine faster. And I don't have an entity for that yet. When I get my GC license, I probably will. Um, and with that, I will be doing some builds, maybe work towards small development, maybe even multifamily. Um, and I'll probably kind of entertain taking clients. Like if someone has a flip and they're out of state and they need a contractor to do the flip, you know, I can probably jump on something like that. But basically that's, that's kind of what I, you know, try not to get too distracted by the shiny object stuff, but focus on rentals and then flips and builds. And if I can just stay focused on that, then I can hire some help, scale a little bit and get a little more stabilized without having to feel like I'm running around with my head. Well, what is the saying? Run around with the chicken with the yeah. head cut off? Something like that. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, what else you got? Do you get some good stories? Uh, some Something that went terribly wrong? Something that went really well that you didn't expect to go well or anything like that? Well, I mean, most of the time when I think about things that haven't gone well, it's usually contractors. The last flip I did, I would say, I think my budget was about 85000 And as a contractor I've worked with in the past, and it was going to be a house that will sell for about 485 is what I was looking to do. That that's, you know, typically I've flipped like 100,000, 200,000 dollar houses. So this was kind of a step like, all right, let's let's try this out. So I hired him, got him on the job, and he said my budget was too low, but he didn't really say like how low. I just figured a little bit. But by the time that project was done, he ended up billing me for 100 well, the project ended up costing $130,000. So we went from 85 to 130. Somehow my profit projections came in about what I originally projected because this is the um, you know the the COVID swell where appreciation was twenty five percent year over year in Nashville just insane and the it went up you know we sold it for five thirty instead of four eighty five so it was just kind of a wild deal like man that could have gone very very wrong if appreciation hadn't been there but I did kind of underwrite it conservatively too so I landed just a smidge more than my conservative number ended up being not a great profit for such a expensive, big project that, that took months. I mean, $130,000, that's, that's quite the renovation. It, you got to be doing a lot to a house to do that. We renovated the whole basement. We turned a garage in a, you know, a gross basement into a full on living quarters with a bathroom that is pumped into the sewer system. I mean, it was 
a pretty intense undertaking. How long do you average on a uh, flip? Are you usually in and out in six months, or does it usually take a little bit longer than that? You know, I think if you have a dedicated contractor or project manager, you can probably shoot for seven to 10,000 a week in spend. So if you've got a $40,000 project, it really should only take about a month. But the reality is nobody can can really do that right now because they're trying to do too much stuff and they're spread too thin. So if, so I would say um, my flips is going to take at least four months on ev- anything. That 130,000 one though, that took maybe seven. So that, that really wasn't too bad, but um, we w- ended up having to wait for cabinets for like a month. So there's a couple <laughs> spots in there that were just brutal. Uh, apparently when when someone steals cabinets from you and you're waiting for them to come deliver them, you really should just be ordering the next set. That was, I mean, every day you, you just learn junk like that. Like, why did I pay that lady? And then she took the money and ran. And then it took me a while to realize, oh, I need to order more cabinets, which is another four week delay. Um, and that was on that $130,000 project. All right. So let's talk about your Instagram investor, Alan, what, what do you got working on there? Yeah. You know, I, I kind of, a few months ago, I started thinking, the wave of the future is to find a home online. And I think I think even for anybody listening, that's something to give serious consideration to. You you might want to plant that seed sooner than later. Um, you just obviously there's guys like Gary Vee who've just blown up and have become huge influencers and in, and in teaching millions of people how to do things well. But even if you can just get some kind of platform, be it a blog or an email list or an Instagram or Facebook, you know, whatever you want to do, just have a presence and you'd be kind of surprised what can happen. I think I've raised like a hundred thousand in private money from my Instagram account and I barely have any followers. Really? You know? Wow. Yeah. It, so, and I mean, you can go look, I'm embarrassed to say how many followers there is, but I'll tell you, it's not very many. And if you just have people who are really paying attention and engaging, you don't need that many followers for it to have an impact. And, um, I just think people are spending their time more and more online. So if you can find a way to enter that space and be there, then people will find you. So all the time, I mean, I found that private money lender in Indiana, the doctor, um, he found me on bigger pockets. I just post on bigger pockets occasionally, you know, just kind of find a place online and start building that. And it's probably going to grow slowly. I mean, if you talk to anybody who has a big following, most people, it was a grind for a while. And then it hits, you know, after a few years even, which is a long time. But once you're there, it's kind of, it's the goose that lays golden eggs for you from that point forward. So I just use Instagram to kind of document my story and uh, tell people what I'm, what I've got going on. I really try to let people learn from what I'm doing. So I'm, I try to be extra transparent so people know the real deal, what's going on. I'm not going to be sitting on a Lamborghini or something trying to make make it look like I'm, you know, just super successful. I'll just tell you what's up. And if I lose money on a deal, you'll see it when the financial <laughs> breakdown comes out. You know, I always laugh at those people that are they're posting pictures of them sitting on a Lamborghini, whatever thing. I'm like, how is that relatable to me? Like, that doesn't relate to me at all. Like, I, I wouldn't follow somebody like that. It doesn't resonate with me either, but I think some people like to see what success looks like, and that's something they want to shoot for. Sure. I did just look it up, by the way. You got 219. Actually, now you have 220 followers. I just started following you, so you're on your way up. (laughs) Let's (laughs) go. Another, um, man, I mean, I could just talk about real estate for days, but another sort of side 
topic for me is uh, the rent to build model. I know some hedge funds are doing that at scale, but I've done a few builds where I rent out the house afterwards. And when you run the pro forma, it looks like an okay deal, but then it actually ended up being better than I thought because maintenance is zero for like two years. Anything that goes wrong, you just call the builder and he fixes it because it shouldn't go wrong. And that's been a couple. So we built in Springfield, Tennessee, we built six houses, I think, five or six. Only one of them I did on my own financially, but I brought partners in on the other five. And those things cash flow like crazy. They're really great. Uh, you do have to buy land pretty cheap. You can't go pay 60K for a lot and rent a house for 1200 bucks or something. But we just build little houses and then rent them out. And that's been a pretty good model for us. It is getting a little bit harder to make the numbers work. Um, but if you can find a neighborhood that's just right, it, it needs to be probably C-class type of neighborhood. And yeah, you're going to have one of the nicer assets in the area, but you got the land pretty cheap. And then you just pop that house up and it can be, it's been working pretty well so far. We had four that we were building. Well, we're still, they're, they're wrapping up probably in about the next month and they were supposed to be built to rent. I, I found a piece of property and I split it and the surveyor is crazy. The surveyor, we needed 15,000 square feet per lot to be able to put two units on that lot. And the survey came back and he uh, parceled out two lots that were like 30 feet over 15,000. So it was like just unbelievably close. Like, ah, man, so much luck is involved in this, I feel like. But so that worked out. So we're building four on those and those were going to be rental properties, but the construction costs went through the roof. And I think we bought the lumber package in like November of 2020. So it had doubled. Uh, it, it later doubled again, but, uh, it was very expensive. So by the time we got the house up, I think our, we're going to come in probably 20, 30% over budget. And, uh, luckily the market has just gone nuts. So we're going to sell those off and actually probably make a decent buck on them, but they're not going to be rentals. The numbers just don't work for that anymore. Now on those other ones you were talking about that were built to rent, uh, what were the numbers on those? You said that it was a neighborhood of six. What was the, uh, what was the asking price and rental and uh, how many bedrooms, bathrooms? Well, the sweet spot is a 3-2. So you, you want to build a 3-2 if you're going single family. And then basically my thought is just make it as small as possible to get a decent amount of rent at that 3-2 in that neighborhood. So if, if you need to build a 1,200 square foot house, then do it. But we did 1,000 square feet, a 3-2. In that neighborhood, they're renting from 1,100 to 1,200. For some reason, they're different, even though they're all like within three blocks of each other. Um, I guess it was timing of the market or whatever. So they each rent for about 1,200. And they're in a pretty rough area, but it's a really nice asset. It's a brand new house, so it draws decent tenants. We've had a little trouble with sustainability no long term tenants tend to move out after a week after a year or so um they don't really like the neighborhood once they settle in but um we've had a few that stay and then we can turn it over pretty quick um oh cost to build oh man in those days i think we built these in like 2019 so it's two years ago from now (laughs) isn't that sad two years ago is those days yeah, yeah, it's the way construction has gone nuts, but we built them at about 90 and then by the last one, it had gone up to 95 per square foot and that's including paying the builder his fee and a thousand square foot house. So it came in around 95,000 per house. So 95,000 to build it. The lot 
Um, one of my marketing mailers found a lady that sold me three lots for 16,000, which is pretty cheap in that area. Um, so, you know, a little over, a little under 6,000 per lot for those and rents for 1200. So if you kind of throw the 1% rule out there, it, you look at the, the price to buy it and build it. If rent is at least 1% of that, then you're looking okay. So 1200 is a little more than 1% of a hundred grand or roughly what we put into it, you know? So it works okay, but it's just nice because there's zero maintenance and, you know, insurance is lower because it's brand new. So everything, it's like these little margins that kind of sneak up on you that end up working in your favor. Most of the rentals I've got, I bought in C-class neighborhoods and that type of thing. And I, I feel like a lot of people start as landlords in the more uh, affordable areas, you know, and it can be a good model to get you started because $150,000 house is better than no house at all if you can't afford a $200,000 house. But I think that you do have to consider the oof, the the margins can sneak up on you in the other way on those because you can have what looks like a good cash flow deal, but then one water heater goes out and that knocks out several months of cash flow. And, um, you know, tenants tend to be a little bit rougher on the house in those areas. So when they move out, you can't just clean the walls. You got to paint them. You got to start all over on some of the things like that. So I, I think as I've kind of grown in the in the rental world, I try to diversify into better assets if I can. Even if that means the cash ROI appears to be lower, usually appreciation makes up for it anyways because it's a better neighborhood. And and that's kind of been a learning curve for me. But I mean, we we think it's crazy when we see a hedge fund pay 200 grand for a house that rents for 1400 or 1600. <clears throat> using the 1% rule as a quick metric there. It sounds crazy, but if you look at the numbers, I mean, who cares if you're giving up a couple hundred bucks of cash flow if the appreciation is like 15 grand a year, you know? And that's basically what Nashville has been doing year over year for like eight years. So it can it can appear to be pretty crazy, but it, well, and you really shouldn't put too much weight on the appreciation unless you're in a place that can that can handle that in your financial career because if you're depending on cash flow and the appreciation doesn't happen, you can end up going a little bit upside down on some of these. But what I'm trying to do is diversify into a few better assets like that that may not may not cash flow incredibly well, but they they definitely make eight, 10, 12 percent ROI and then they appreciate and go up. I mean I've got rentals that I bought in Nashville a few years ago that have gone up 100 and 200 K and they're, I paid like a hundred for them. So they've like, the equity is just insane. And all I did was just get my name on title on something and hang on to it. So that's uh, much more serious money than 200 bucks a month of cash flow. And you can really build wealth that way if you refinance out and then go buy some more and that whole thing. Absolutely. Keeping it highly leveraged. Um, now, what about wood yeah. prices now? Have lumber prices come down at all since you said you last bought that? They have, man. Yeah. Um, it's pretty phenomenal. We... I've actually, I was like watching lumber like crazy for a while. I think I checked it one <laughs> or two days ago and it was down. Nerding out on lumber prices? Well, yeah, because it's, I mean, you want to build and pull a lumber package for a build and it's 3x the price that the builder quoted you at in October. It, you know, it's been crazy, but now it's down to 550. So it's pretty close to the historic average, but it went up to uh, like 16, 1700 per thousand board foot, I think is what they call that metric. 
And it's, I mean, you can even tell just going into Home Depot, a two by eight is back to five bucks or something, I think. And it was up to 10 at one point. It was, it was pretty crazy. So I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping to see commodities come back down. That's been a real constraint for builders and flippers to a smaller extent, but builders, you know, that's a big expense. If your lumber goes up and your copper, uh, I mean, just running your wiring, that has gone up three times, according to my electrician. And hopefully that'll start creeping back down as, you know, the the COVID uh, situation kind of calms down and everybody is able to catch up on supply. That That's kind of what I'm looking to see. I think some people are calling for like late 2022. I think probably even in the next nine to 12 months, I think commodities will be much lower and it'll be more affordable to build. It's never going to be as low as it was, but it doesn't need to be this crazy price like it is now where a roll of um, wiring is a hundred bucks more than it was when it was 50. So do you think that in the near future, you'll be able to start doing some more of the build to rent or uh, is it going to have to come down quite a bit more before that makes sense for you? I think it's very doable. I think the tr- the main hurdle for build to rent is going to be finding land that can be repurposed. I was talking to a builder friend of mine the other day on how he does build to rent stuff and he will just buy or he'll put a contract on a lot that looks you know, somewhat promising. And then he'll start the rezoning process, or maybe, maybe you need a variance. You know, there's a couple different approaches to it, but you sort of reposition the land use and then you can build more units on it. So what might've been, uh, you know, a, a single build, you might be able to get three on, but really where I think the scale is, is if you can find a commercial lot, maybe an acre and you rezone it to in Nashville would be probably RM zoning or something like that, but get 10, 20 units on it. And you can start to get some economies of scale because you're sharing walls, sharing floors. Um, You don't have to build out several different, uh, you know, footprints for different houses. It it can all be one footprint in one roof. And I think, I think it can be pretty affordable if you take an approach to it that is efficient. I think a lot of builders are just, trying to keep up with the crazy demand and just throwing people and, and materials and money at stuff to just get houses up because it doesn't matter if you're building a $700,000 house, if you spent 20 K more, you know, per door on something. But if you can pay attention to efficiencies and build a little bit more of a process, which is what I'll be looking to do is, you know, there's a certain width of a house that is more efficient than another. Cause you can't really get lumber. That's more than 16 feet long. So if you're building a house that's 35 feet wide, then you're kind of in a position where you're going to have to probably add some walls, you know, frame up the house differently. But if you can go 16 feet on each side, then you can um, probably span that. I think some jurisdictions you can only span 12 feet. So maybe you do a 24 foot wide footprint and that will help keep your cost down because it's more efficient. You don't have contractors cutting as many boards. I mean, little things like that. If you can build a process, it's uh, it can be a lot more affordable. And quite frankly, that's probably the number one problem in the real estate market right now is inventory, right? There's just not enough houses for people to live in. I think Freddie Mac rolled out a stat. Uh, it was maybe one or I think it was about a year ago. They said that we're 3.8 million housing units short. So that kind of right there explains to me why prices keep going up and up because there's just not enough inventory for people. I know in Nashville, ah, shoot, I I bet there's at least 20 buyers for every house that's available in Nashville. I think COVID made that even 
worse, you know, because just the whole economics of it all went upside down. I think once COVID calms down, it'll still be five, 10 buyers per house. So we just need more houses somewhere for people to live, even if it's multifamily rental units. I mean, landlords are getting their places rented out real quick. We just need more housing. Oh, yeah, no doubt. There's been a huge shortage. And now with all this money pumped into the market, there's just so many people looking to buy. So how's your process for getting new tenants and managing the units that you do manage? Yeah, I, I've built a bit of a of a property management company in the sense that I hired somebody to run all of it, but they only manage my units we might end up starting a property management company later and scaling that up. But for now, our 25 or so units in the Nashville area, we manage in-house. Um, processes are everything in property management. I'll tell you what, I, uh, an in-law got married this weekend. So I was hanging out with some family and one of the family members was a landlord on a house where just everything that went wrong could. You know, The tenants were just unbelievably disgusting and they wouldn't move out and and for months and months he wasn't getting rent and they just destroyed the house you know it's worst case scenario but it's like if you hire a property manager it's you know maybe 10 percent in most areas it's about about 10 percent. and if your rental property is a thousand a month to 1500 a month you're talking about you're trying to save 100 to 150 bucks a month to have a whole business that can screen tenants, place tenants, give them notices to comply when they have a car in the yard. It's just all these processes that have to happen. I don't understand why people try to self-manage. Now, if you got one or two houses, maybe, but you're going to end up trying to save $150 and then wasting thousands because you put in a tenant that moves out at month nine. Maybe you don't lose money, but you make money when your tenant stays at least three years or so, you know, turnover is the cost. So I always tell people like it's, it's a business, either you're doing the job or someone else is doing the job of property management. And if you don't want to build your business to vet tenants, then just hire somebody there. They're relatively inexpensive to get a good property manager. It's pretty pretty wild. Now, I, in a sense, I didn't take my own advice. I, I ended up scaling my business in-house. And so now I have all these processes, just pages and pages of Google Docs on how to screen tenants. But I will say that you, you got to be firm and you got to have your process. Anytime um, either I or my admin assistant kind of misfires on one of the procedures I've written out, it ends up costing us, it ends up going wrong a little bit because of that. If you just stick with your process every time and do it the same way, you know, I vet every tenant the same way. You just got to make sure that they are a high likelihood of being a good tenant. It's things like I heard that you should take, uh, when I first placed my first tenant, okay, I thought that everyone says you have, you take probably a month of security deposit and then the first month's rent up front. So that sounded good. So I agreed to meet her at her house and give her the keys and we were going to sign the lease. So she shows up and says, well, I don't have the security deposit, but, or actually I think she did have the security deposit, but not the first month's rent. And I thought, well, that's okay. If you can just get that to me by the fifth, you know, that'll be fine. Big deal. It turns out this lady doesn't really have money. <laughs> so it's, it's, you got to have the, the vetting techniques because it, it's little things like that, that show how things are going to go down the road. So if they show up without their security deposit or the first month's rent, you just have to say, well, um, let's let's reschedule for when you have that and then keep vetting other tenants so that you always have leverage and, and just keep moving everything down the funnel, down the process. Property management is just all about a thousand little repeated tasks that need to follow a process and a checklist. When a tenant moves out, you should have a checklist for a number of things that you do right away, you know, and all these things I've written out in my, well, I call them my bylaws, but my uh, standard operating procedures 
for how to do that. And each time, you know, you tweak it a little bit here, a little bit there. If people are late on rent, I have a, I have a, what would you call it? A protocol where if it's their first time being late, then we give them a courtesy notice. But if they've been late more than three times in the past three months, then we just send that eviction notice. Cause it's like, well, I'm not trying to change your behavior with a nice little text. That's obviously not working. So it's time to get real. I mean, are you going to pay rent or not? And you, everybody's got their sob story for you. And it may not feel like a sob story when they're telling you because you're going to start to buy into it. It happens all the time. And in fact, my admin assistant will sometimes be telling me, well, she's got this, this and that going on. I'm like, hang on a second. We don't even know if that's true. I mean, even if it is, you know, so you just got to stick to your plan. I'm the sucker. My wife tells me I'm the sucker. Yeah, but he told me this, you know, and it's like, yeah, he's just making that up to play with you. And then I'm like, that's son of a bitch, you know, and then I get pissed. Yeah. And at the time, it feels so real. Like you, it doesn't feel like a sob story. I'm sure anybody listening to this has probably thought like, oh, yeah, I've heard a story that may or may not have been true, but it totally felt like not a sob story. It felt like, man, this poor guy. It, It does. And then sure enough, you know, oh, the they'll say whatever they have to to get in the door. Once they get in the door. That is, oh man, on a side note here, that is a really big part of property management is people, um, you got to be firm from the get-go. I'm telling you that first 30 days is everything, especially the first like hour when they sign the lease, you are setting the pace for that relationship. If they say, hey, is it okay if I pay a little bit late? And you say, um, yeah, that's okay this time. It's not just this time. Like They have to believe that you're the alpha and it's weird, but when you're a young kid, like I was, it's kind of hard to do. But if you just be the alpha and just say, nope, that's not how things work. Standard, you know, company policy, whatever you want to call it, is that we do X, Y, Z. And and they'll fall in line or they'll leave. I mean, I've inherited tenants that were just complete. Douchebags? <laughs> what, what's like a respectful term? I mean, they just were not on top of their finances. You know, they had no idea what was going on. And they just could not pay rent. And every single month I was, I mean, dude, for years on this guy. Every month I was just cracking down on him like, well, you know, rent's late. So you got to pay that late fee and you can put it in the mail and or whatever. The only way I was collecting rent at the time was money orders. So it's just like, hey, if it's postmarked by the fifth, then you're good. If not, we're adding on that late fee and we're enforcing that. And I just did that every month again and again and again. And eventually they started to pay better. And there's still a little bit of a headache, but not as bad. Man, once they once they go sour, it's tough to bring them back. Yeah, I think you pretty much explained me at the beginning. <laughs> I was so too nice to people, and oh, okay, yeah, that's all right. Don't worry about it. Oh, you want to move over to the bigger garage? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Move over, move all your stuff over <laughs> to the bigger garage. And uh, yeah, like you said, right from the beginning, he knew he could take advantage of us. I kind of look at it like I'm just following my checklist, you know, just step by step. It's not, it's not an emotional decision, you know. Oh gosh, should I? you know, evict this guy right on the the week after the 4th of July or whatever. It's just, well, this is what we do. If you don't pay rent, like you said, you would pay rent, then I send you a pay or quit. And by the way, if you don't pay by the 20th or the 15th, then we go to court. That's just, you, <laughs> this is the process. This is the procedure. I just go from A to B, from B to C. And if you take me all the way to F or whatever, then that's where we'll go. But it's really not up to me. Just following company procedure. But I think that uh, they, the tenants can kind of like sniff it out. Sometimes when you're first talking to them, they just think that, I don't know, because people took me for a role at the beginning. I guess I was just, it was kind of a crazy neighborhood. So I, I was just like this punk kid who was trying to be a landlord. And I just don't think that they really 
believed that I knew what I was doing. I don't, I can't tell you the psychographics of how you convey that or whatever, but in time you just gain more confidence and you have more, I mean, I guess processes and procedures, whatever. I don't know what changes, but eventually people start taking my management tactics more seriously. And, you know, we've never had to evict a tenant I've placed. We've sent plenty of eviction letters, but they usually get back in line or just move out and we, you know, break even on that one. Um, which isn't so bad, but they can kind of sniff it out. And I don't know, you just have to be firm from the get go. And there's, there's room for grace here and there. But, um, if, if you, if you're a person, which it sounds like you are Dave, where it, you're kind of a more, um, loving person, <laughs> unlike, unlike myself. So maybe you just got to align yourself. I think I'm more, I might be more of a sucker in this one. Ah, well, we don't need that. Maybe I'll let you, you choose the words there. go alan smith nashville tennessee you can follow him on instagram at investor alan that's a-l-l-a-n not e-n it's alan not alan you can check out his website at skylinehomesolutions.com i have links to both of those in the show notes below uh, so get out there subscribe apple google iHeartRadio, pandora spotify be back next monday with an all-new episode get out there and get after it let up Thank you for listening to the Highly Leveraged Podcast. Leave a review and subscribe to get new shows automatically downloaded every Monday morning. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Highly Leveraged Pod and check out our website at highlyleveragedpod.com for more info. <coughs> for sure. <coughs> Don't mind me, I'm just dying over here. <coughs> I can edit that out. Don't worry. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'll be all right. Just talk to yourself for a second. <clears throat>